Isaiah 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift, because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said, what did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? Oh, they saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I didn't show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to them. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, a voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now over to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 verse 1 to 12. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. 
But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not even fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, these passages of Scripture. And we pray that by your word and spirit that our minds and our hearts would be changed. We pray also for the children as they learn from your word that uh, they would be firmly rooted and established in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may never have heard the name uh, of... uh, Joe Lowe. Uh, However, until a few years back, uh, he was greatly admired by people who were wealthy, people who were powerful, people who were famous. Uh, Growing up in a Chinese business family in Penang in Malaysia, his father had plans for Joe and he groomed him for greatness. In 1998, age 16, he was sent to England where he was enrolled in London's Harrow School, an elite uh, private school, they would call it a public school, but an elite school. And the purpose of that choice was to catapult Joe into the world of the ultra-rich. Uh, to catapult him into a network of some of the wealthiest people in the world. Um, Royal families send their sons to Harrow School. The royal families of Europe, of uh, Asia, and uh, most significantly for him, uh, from oil-rich Middle Eastern states. The purpose for him was to to network amongst these greats uh, that he might become great himself. After school, he went to the US and he studied at the Wharton Business School, which I think is in Pennsylvania, perhaps, um, where Joe Lowe uh, mastered the art of positioning himself relationally. And so over the next few years, uh, again, he was still in his 20s, early 20s, he uh, networked with powerful people who had access to... Uh, investment funds and through a network of uh, shell companies uh, which he registered in tax havens in the Cayman Islands and places like that where they don't um, they're not really big on the idea of financial scrutiny he became fabulously wealthy uh, with eventually by these early 30s mansions in some of the most expensive cities in the world private jets, um, ultra-glamorous parties, uh, able to give away jewellery to friends and even strangers, sometimes jewellery worth millions of dollars, and he enjoyed elite status at casinos and would not blink at uh, losing $200,000 on one roll of the dice. He spent money like no one amongst the business and entertainment elite 
of the United States had ever seen. Celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Martin Scorsese and Paris Hilton were regulars at his parties, although he had to pay Paris to come, a couple of hundred thousand dollars a party, and she would turn up. But better than that, he even got to date a girl from Gunnedah. Um, Miranda Kerr became his girlfriend. Shrouded in mystery, people assumed that he was some kind of a Malaysian prince, which Malaysians would laugh at because he was Chinese, not Malay, uh, or that perhaps he was the son of a, a tycoon from China. But they didn't really care about the source of his money. He was a modern-day Jay Gatsby. They just admired him because he was fabulously rich. He was one of the truly great ones. What makes a person great? In the eyes of the world, it might be how much money they splash around, the power that they yield, or it might be the influence with which they can shape and control others to be like them. Jesus, though, had a different view of greatness. In fact, uh, in a passage, not the one we're specifically looking at today, but in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus named the person whom he considered to be the greatest person who had ever lived. Now, because it was Jesus, we would probably rule out that it might say Alexander the Great or uh, Julius Caesar. Uh, but he said, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than, who would you think, perhaps Abraham, maybe Moses, uh, or perhaps David, King David, but no, he names John the Baptist as the greatest person has ever been born of a woman. How about that? I mean, where would John the Baptist uh, rank on your list of the truly great ones? Today we look at Matthew chapter 3, if you'd care to look that up. And we've now fast-forwarded several decades from where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 2, and things have changed. Jesus is now a grown man, uh, as is his cousin John. Things have changed politically. Last week we learnt about the Roman leadership at the time, and now it's a little bit different. The Herods are not... As in control, there's now a procurator in Judea. His name is Pontius Pilate. He's like a, a, um, a governor, if you like. But here in Matthew chapter 3, we're introduced to some of the Jewish religious leaders, namely the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, of course, when we think of Pharisees, what kind of person comes to our mind? What's the image that uh, arises in your thinking when you think of the word Pharisee? It's uh, the Pharisee, we think of the person who's the nitpicker, don't we? The, the legalist, the person who's uh, concerned about outward appearances rather than inward realities. Uh, which, of course, is true with uh, a few exceptions, though, in the New Testament, such as Nicodemus. However, as a movement, the Pharisees had started off as a godly group of men. Uh, the word Pharisee means separated ones or holy ones. They were so concerned to uphold God's law that they developed a system of laws in addition to God's law so that 
in order for someone to actually break one of God's law, they would have to step over a number of hurdles, they would have broken a number of other laws first before they'd get anywhere near breaking one of God's laws. But by the first century, for many Pharisees, law-keeping had become a higher priority than loving God. An external uh, expression uh, rather than an internal reality. And that's why Jesus accused them in Matthew chapter 23 of religious emptiness and hypocrisy. Now, the Sadducees, they were, they were different to the Pharisees. They're a very different group of people. Um, they were mostly wealthy uh, men. They were of the priestly class. They were connected to the priests. Uh, they claimed to believe the scriptures or part of the scriptures, but they denied uh, things such as the existence of angels, um, the afterlife and the resurrection. And the Sadducees were very comfortable with Roman occupation. They believed in this life more than in the next. And so whereas the Pharisees trusted in their religious observances and their law-keeping, uh, the Sadducees tended to trust in their wealth and their power, their position in society. Now that's all background stuff. But it's into this religious environment that a man, uh, a pretty rough-looking bloke, uh, he's wearing clothes that are made out of camel hair and he, his diet consists of, uh, of uh, locusts. He eats locusts for lunch and, and wild honey uh, that he began, uh, appeared in the wilderness and he began to preach. Let's have a look at the first few verses of Matthew 3 again. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now, I know that some of you have heard this illustration before, but I think it's worth saying again, I kind of like this story. Many, many years ago, Cassie and myself worked for a church in Redfern, down in Sydney. And uh, just nearby to the church, the government, uh, some years earlier, before we arrived, had built uh, these um, uh, public housing estates but a new type of public housing estate in the late 60s, early 70s. It was, they were high-rise, like about 20, 30 storeys high, people living in little boxes on top of one. And I'm not sure if they're still there or not. I think there's some talk of pulling them down. Um, they were uh, not great places to live, but at the time that they were built, they were state-of-the-art in public housing. In fact, after people moved into these um, flat blocks of flats, they had the official opening and they invited Queen Elizabeth II to come and open the buildings, these towers. Which was interesting news for one <coughs> little old lady who was one of the residents who they expected her to have Queen Elizabeth come to her flat for a cup of tea. And so imagine that. <laughs> You'd probably do the vacuuming, wouldn't you? And do a bit of dusting and... <laughs> <laughs> wash the dishes and pull out. Well, the government did better than that. The Grace Brothers removalist truck arrived the day before the Queen arrived and they, the men went up to their flat and they pulled out 
every bit of furniture that this lady owned, <clears throat> put that in the back of the truck and they replaced it all with beautiful brand new stuff from Grace Brothers. It was fantastic. She thought it was great <clears throat> until the <clears throat> day after when they come and took it all back again. <clears throat> but what they were doing was they were preparing the way for the monarch, weren't they? And you'd do that. You would clean up. Um, <clears throat> you'd, uh, you'd wash up the dishes before the queen came. In the ancient world, when a king was coming to a city, the workers would they'd get out <clears throat> there on the, on, on the roads and they'd fill the potholes and they'd <laughs> make it all nice and smooth and uncluttered. They'd clear away the garbage. They'd make the road uh, beautiful for the monarch and a herald, a herald would uh, come in advance and would proclaim the coming of the king. And this is what John was doing. He's preparing the way for the coming of the king. Now, why is he doing that in the desert? Why not in the city? Why has he gone to the desert? Well, Matthew says that John <clears throat> was actually fulfilling a prophecy. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 there. I want us to actually put that in context a little bit and go to Isaiah chapter 39 if you'd like to open that up in your Bibles flip over to Isaiah chapter 39 <clears throat> and some of the story here we learnt about late last year when we were looking at two chronicles uh, in Isaiah 39 Hezekiah was the king in the southern kingdom of Judah uh, Hezekiah was a, a good king but uh, by the time of Hezekiah, we're coming close to the time when, well, Judah is inexorably heading towards um, punishment and judgment because of the ungodliness of uh, the Jews over uh, many, many, many years. And here in uh, Isaiah chapter 39, uh, that time is coming close. Um, in King Hezekiah did something rather silly he from a worldly point of view uh, there were some envoys had come from Babylon and he invited them in to his palace and he decided to show them around show them all of the uh, the treasures of his palace as well as everything else in his kingdom and not really a smart move uh, to do that for foreign envoys in verses 5 to 7 Isaiah announces that a time would soon come when those royal treasures and also the king's descendants are going to be carried away that they're going to be taken across the desert uh, into Babylon this is the promise of exile now Hezekiah there he kind of finishes up in verse 8 he's not too unhappy about this situation because he's thinking well it's by God's grace it's not going to happen in his lifetime but it will happen soon and he thinks well there's going to be peace and security at least in my lifetime I'm not going to have to deal with this it's going to come later it's a rather short-sighted kind of thinking it's the promise of exile that God's people would be taken out of the promised land and into exile in Babylon 
as judgment for their sin. But Isaiah 40 continues with a message of hope. Uh, because Isaiah then speaks, uh, it's recorded for us here, a word of comfort. Um, in verse 3 of chapter 40, he talks about the fact that there would be a voice that would be calling in the desert uh, to prepare a highway for God. That is, that the exile would not last forever. For the Lord would lead his people um, back to Jerusalem. Now, that of course happened, didn't it? Um, after the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians, it was King Cyrus uh, who allowed the Jews to return from exile back to, to Judea, back to, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. And so, in the New Testament, the exiles have already returned hundreds of years earlier. They're back in the land. Jerusalem is being, has been rebuilt. There is a temple again. And so the question, therefore, is in that case, why is it that, um, that Matthew says that John the Baptist fulfills this, pro this prophecy? Why is it that in John the Baptist this prophecy of a highway in the desert um, is being fulfilled. It's as if Matthew is saying that although they are actually back in the land, that they're actually still outside of the kingdom of God. It's as if they're still in their sins, as if they're still in exile. In Matthew 3, uh, verse 2, the message that John preached was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near it's about to happen this kingdom to repent of course um, means to do a u-turn in life we, we live our lives our way without god live for ourselves and to repent means to do to turn around and to start doing the opposite to that and that is to live for god as number one that's John's message, but he didn't just preach. In verse 5, uh, we're told that John had, had attracted people out of the city and out of the towns and out of the regions and into the desert. And it was there that he baptised them in the Jordan River. Now, why did he do that? Why baptise people? Is that something which we've read about in the Old Testament law? I don't think so. I mean, uh, in the Old Testament law, there were ceremonial washings that Jews did, which they repeated over and over and over again. But the, the one-time washing that, that, um, uh, that we see here, that Jews never performed that on themselves. But they did actually do it for Gentiles. For Gentiles who would acknowledged the God of Israel, for Gentiles who wanted to become part of God's people, they would be baptised, they would be washed. And so what's going on here? By baptising Jews, John is saying to them, 
Uh, you might be a descendant of Abraham physically. You might have the law of Moses. You might live in the promised land. But I'm treating you like Gentiles. You're outside of the kingdom. You don't have a relationship with God. You need, like a Gentile, to enter into God's kingdom. Now, it's no surprise that uh, when word got around about this, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees um, thought, well, we better go and check this out, <laughs> see what's going on. What, what's, what's he saying? What's he doing? Uh, here is someone out in the desert and he's rocking the boat. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't all too impressed by that. Have a look in verse 7 to 10. In verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, and this is directly from how to win friends and influence people, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce fruit, good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Imagine the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're just turning up in their flowing robes and want to see what's going on here. And this guy just eyeballs them and, uh, you know, gives them the old one too. <laughs> and actually, you brood of... He would have known what a viper was. He lived in the desert. He lived in the desert. And uh, the vipers were... Uh, very small, very poisonous snake, and they were very dangerous because when they when they were still, they looked like they were just part of a dead branch, and and that's deceiving really. It, it was the apostle Paul was bitten by a viper in Malta when he you know reached into some firewood. And he's saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees that you're just like that. You look the part. You look harmless but you're actually really, really dangerous. You brood of vipers. Who warned you, he says in verse 7, to flee from the coming wrath? He's describing them as like snakes slithering away from an encroaching fire. And there is a fire. Because in verses 11 and 12, there is not only John's baptism, but there is another baptism. Let me read to you verse 11. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Don't be afraid of me, says John. I'm just the messenger. There's someone coming behind me who I'm preparing the way for. Someone who is far greater than me. Someone who is so great that I'm not even worthy to, to carry his thongs. And he also will baptise. It's interesting what he says here about this other baptism because it's He's going to baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I don't think the fire is like the, 
the tongues of fire when the Holy Spirit came because he kind of describes that fire in verse 12 when he, he talks about it being an unquenchable fire. It's, the, uh, it's, it's like the, um, the farmer with his winnowing fork when he throws up the wheat and the chaff blows away. This is a separation that's going on here. Uh, that there will be some who will respond to this one who's coming later by the Holy Spirit, that they will respond with faith and repentance. There'll be others who will be punished. An unquenchable fire. Sort of good news for some and bad news for others. So, why did Jesus say that John was the greatest person who ever lived? It was because of the role that he had. That he came... He was the one who came to clear the road for the king of kings. Which meant that he called on all people to repent. It didn't matter who they were. It didn't matter how great or how small they were in the eyes of the, the world. From the, the humble Jews who came out into the desert and submitted themselves to being baptised. To the religious leaders whom he stared down. And he even took it up to the worldly authorities, to the representative of Caesar. For when Herod Antipas married his brother's wife, it was John the Baptist who confronted the man. It cost him his head, but he served a greater king than Caesar. However, in Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus declared John to be the greatest man who'd ever lived, ever born of a woman, he then went on to say in the next breath, yet he who is least in the kingdom uh, is greater than John. Now, how can that be? <laughs> I mean, you know, the greatest person who's ever lived and then he's the least of the least of the, in the kingdom of heaven. You know, how can that be? I think the answer is that when we meet John, we do so in the New Testament. But in actual fact, John the Baptist is an Old Testament character. He is the last of the Old Covenant prophets. He cleared the way for Jesus... But he lived and he died before the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So he's actually an old covenant prophet, the last of the old covenant prophets. You and I, though, we live this side of those events. We know that Jesus' death has paid for sins and and brings forgiveness. We know of the eternal life that comes through his resurrection. We know, we know the king. We know the king who from heaven now rules our lives, who rules our hearts by his spirit whom he has sent. We know the king who will one day come again in judgment. Which means 
that we know that which prophets longed to see. We, we know more than John the Baptist ever got to, knew, to, know, to know in his earthly life. Which means that the little children in the hall who are reading God's word now, they actually have greater knowledge than what John the Baptist did. Which means that if you're a person who's put your trust in Christ even just recently, then you're actually greater than John the Baptist. Because, because you know that which he did not get to know. The so-called elite of this world, they thought that Joe Lowe was great because he had untold wealth to splash around. Uh, he is, of course, a crook who pulled off arguably the biggest heist in the history of the world. He stole $5 billion. That's why he had plenty to splash around. <laughs> uh, it's why the former Malaysian Prime Minister is now on trial and Joe Lowe is now on the run. It's called the 1MDB scandal, One Malaysia Development Bank scandal. Look it up. It's an interesting story. True greatness is not about what we own or how celebrated we are or how many people we control. True greatness is derivative. It is derived, our greatness is derived from whom we know, or rather who knows us. Our greatness is derived from knowing Jesus and being known by him. The one who by his death and resurrection brings us out of sin and judgment and into the kingdom which he rules forever. To confess your sin, to trust in Christ, and to live for him, I've got to tell you this, there is nothing greater than that. That's true greatness that lasts forever. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the greatness that is derived from knowing Jesus. Him who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, help us to understand our identity in Christ. That we would be people who do not seek <clears throat> to find greatness in the things of this world, but rather in humble service of him who is the King of Kings. In Jesus' name, Amen.